Hello. Okay, is there anyone here who wasn't? Um, okay. Uh, are you still shopping or? Yeah. No. Okay, whatever, maybe. Um, do you need soul buying stuff? Unfortunately, that's too bad. Um, I will upload them to Latte, but are you guys on Latte yet? Or um, Is there anyone here now who's not registered? Okay, so you, <laughs> you're buying a pig and a poke, good. Um, okay, so I will up, upload a syllabus to Latte tonight so you can do it. Basically what um, we're reading this week is Wyatt from this book. Can someone hold it up? I don't want to hold up the hardcover because it's too heavy. Um, so the selections from Thomas Wyatt in that book, as well as um, two poems on the sheet of paper that are coming around, um, and I hope they're enough, 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12, 14, 16, maybe enough. Nope. <laughs> no, not enough. Um, okay, I will upload the two poems that are on this sheet also onto Latte. They are two um, sonnets of Wyatt's that are not in the um, Amherst Jones volume that um, you just looked it up. Um, so you should read those also. Uh, what we talked about last Wednesday was a Wyatt poem called They Flee From Me. And so that's one that you should immerse yourselves in. You should immerse yourself in everything. Um, you should also, if you can, quickly, I don't know what that means. It's just some professorial term of art, meaning you should do the reading, um, but I'm going to pretend it's not much. Um, read, the, read the skeleton um, poems that are the first uh, selection in this book. How many people did read those quickly? Did you read them quickly or did you like read them? Yeah, okay, yeah, all right. Even those who are volunteering to say anything about it um, kind of read them. That's okay, that's Skelton. You like Philip? Yeah, everyone loves Philip, um, Philip the Sparrow. We'll actually talk about that a little bit. Um, okay, so, and what I will do is um, re-figure um, uh, out who's who by looking at Latte again also. But let's go around the room again and people can introduce themselves. You don't have to say, you know, your biography, just your name. Um, so, so, were you here? I was not here. You were here. Uh, you were not here, yes. So, but you're here now. So, what's your name? Okay, that's it. That's you don't have to. I mean, if you really need to, you can. But. Okay. I'm Nikki, Leah, Rachel, Zion. Uh, let's go this way. Yeah. Oh, Sam, Omri, Barbara, Stephen, Megan, Lorelai, Yael, Susan, Emily, Gabriel, Gabriel, Lauren, <laughs> Cassie, George, Okay. That's actually incredibly useful. You guys should always sit together. Do you know each other? Vaguely. Vaguely. By name. Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, so Gabriel is one of the archangels, as we'll see. And Gabrielle Gifford is about to resign from Congress. So just shows how everything goes together. That's actually a sort of skeletonic um, thing to say. What? Lumping and splitting. Lumping and splitting, yeah. Lumping and splitting. Uh, okay, so what I thought we would do today 
Um, you, you can, oh, actually, I have one, even though you already got one. Oh, this is from last Oh, no, no, this is, yeah, the thing that's gone around the room is reading for Wednesday. There, there isn't enough, but I'm going to upload it to Latte. So you'll just get a, a forced email. Um, more spam for your inbox. I actually have two, 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 two syllabi that I can give to people now. And one, and anyone else? No? You took one. From whom? Oh, you did. Okay. Anyone else need one? I actually have a syllabus instead of the reading somehow. Oh, I, okay. Here's two more readings. That's weird. <laughs> Um, so here are two more readings. Okay, those of you, here's, here's what we're going to do in order to be efficient. Um, I have one more syllabus. Someone, quick. Okay, it's yours. The rest of you, if you have smartphones, you can take a picture of your neighbor's syllabus. <laughs> you don't care that much. Okay. <laughs> um, otherwise, <laughs> just wait till it goes up on Latte. As I say, this week is easy. The one thing that I thought we would do, and... Um, I still think it makes sense, but maybe less sense with um, several people here not having read They Flee For Me, um, is to look at the Herbert poem, Love Three, which was the other um, poem that I brought in um, to juxtapose with They Flee For Me. Um, so I guess what I'll do, look, what I'm going to do is read They Flee For Me aloud. and. Um, then just say a couple of things about it, just so everyone is um, on the same page, if not on the same line of that page. And um, then we can look at Love 3, which is a century later. Um, so What They Flee For Me is about, it's a very good first poem to read by Wyatt. One, because it's just so amazing a poem. And two, because it's about a characteristic theme of Wyatt's that many of you will have already twigged to, which is a theme of disillusion in the hothouse atmosphere in a very, in a very, very um, claustrophobic and enclosed social and personal atmosphere um, with the king always present around the next corner um, and with fear of the king, something that is animating everyone. Um, so Wyatt is the great poet of courtly disillusion, disillusion with the life at court. and. Um, he, they flee for me is a very good example of that. Um, so what it's about, more or less, is Wyatt recollecting a time when he played the game really well with the the sexual, courtly, flirtatious, um, serial polygamy, not even serial serial monogamy game, um, with many women at court who also played. Um, each of them played it with many men at court, and um, he falls in love. And that falling in love becomes a disaster because it's, um, that's what it means to lose the game that everyone is playing, is to actually fall for someone, not to maintain your own self-possession. And the game is described as Wyatt will often describe it. Those of you who read Wyatt will have, um, for today, who read through the Wyatt for today, um, will remember the poem, Whoso Lists to Hunt, um, the second line of which is, I know where is an hind. That is, whoever wants to hunt um, for a woman, for a particular woman, whoever is on the market, whoever is looking um, for some um, intense, erotic, 
relationship. Um, there's someone I know, but as for me, I can know more. Um, he can't follow her. He can't um, court her any longer. Um, the poem tells us why, but um, what I'm drawing your attention to right now is the fact that um, the erotic um, interest and seduction and, um, and uh, hooking up in the old sense of hooking up, not the way you guys mean it, um, is um, in Wyatt is figuratively described as um, a hunt um, or figuratively described in terms um, that have to do with predator and prey. But it's not clear who the predator is and who the prey is under um, in these situations. So um, They Flee For Me is a poem like that, that they are the many, many women whom Wyatt was once um, regarded as um, an object of desire by, and um, the many women whom he has had various kinds of relationships with, all consenting, all adult. They flee from me that sometime did me seek with naked foot stalking in my chamber. So they stalked him in his chamber. They were barefoot. Um, it was part of the game. I have seen them gentle, tame, and meek that now are wild and do not remember that sometime they put themselves in danger to take bread at my hand. And now they range busily seeking with a continual change. Um, so it's like getting um, very shy animals to trust you enough to take bread. Um, the animals put themselves in danger to do that. Taking bread there, though, means having sex with. That is, being vulnerable, at least for a night. Being vulnerable um, in um, agreeing, in consenting to a sexual relationship, even though they're not actually as, they're, they're no more likely to stay than a squirrel or a deer, which is um, what White will always be thinking of, is likely to stay even if it comes and nibbles some bread from your hand. Um, that doesn't mean that it's now your pet. It doesn't mean that um, it's now domesticated. It means that there's a moment of trust, and that moment of trust is one that you haven't violated. They've put themselves momentarily in your power, and you haven't violated that by capturing them. So if you feed wild animals and you get them to trust you, that's great. That feels great. It feels like a win-win. Um, and that's what he's describing both ways of the sexual relationship in court. Um, both are the hunters. They are the ones stalking him with naked foot in his chamber, but in his chamber. So they're both the hunters, both the prey. It's mutual. There's mutuality there. And the mutuality is also a mutual agreement that it's friends with benefits, that it's not love. Um, so this has happened many times. They flee from me that sometime did me seek. They once wanted to hunt me up. They flee from me that sometime did me seek with naked foot stalking in my chamber. I have seen them gentle, tame, and meek that now are wild and do not remember that sometime they put themselves in danger to take bread at my hand. And now they range busily seeking with a continual change. Thanked be fortune it hath been otherwise. 
So there was a time when it was different. 20 times better. The 20 times mean means 20 different occasions, not 20 times as good as it is now. But um, there have been at least 20 times when things were otherwise. 20 times they were better is how to understand that in modern English. 20 times better, but once in special, in thin array after a pleasant guise. We don't even know who's in thin array. It's almost as though he's letting that thought come to his mind, but letting the thought come to his mind first as, as an image of what she's wearing before he even thinks of her. So it hath been otherwise 20 times better, but once in special in thin array after a pleasant guise, that is, um, according to a pleasant way of dressing, um, an attractive, as in erotically attractive way, in thin array after a pleasant guise, when her loose gown from her shoulders did fall, and she caught me in her arms long and small. Small there means slender. There with all me, excuse me, there with all sweetly did me kiss, and softly said, dear heart, how like you this. Um, sorry, I, re I, I um, misphrased the third to last line. And she me caught in her arms long and small. Therewithal sweetly did me kiss and softly said, dear heart, how like you this. And that moment is a privileged moment in his life. That's a moment that he will remember. That's a moment that stands outside the general run of one thing after another in his life. That's something he returns to. Um, what people noticed last time about this was um, a kind of wonder that gets underlined by the very next line of the poem, that it feels like a dream just because the very next line says, even though more or less the next line says, even though it feels like a dream, it was no dream. I lay broad waking. So saying it wasn't a dream is how we know it felt like a dream. One thing that we didn't talk about, but I just want to mention here, is that the first two stanzas, in an interesting way, both end with something like a question that is seeking an answer of some sort. The first stanza is that they ends, they are busily seeking with a continual change, looking for something else, looking for, looking for something. The second stanza ends with an actual question, dear heart, how like you this? And then the third stanza also is going to end with an implicit question. So the third stanza goes, it was no dream, I lay broad waking. But all is turned through my gentleness into a strange fashion of forsaking. So it's all changed now through my gentleness, because I didn't demand more. I hoped for more. I, in a sense, trusted her more than I should have. And the result of my trust was not that she grabbed me, but that she left me when I thought she wouldn't. All is turned through my gentleness into a strange fashion of forsaking. And I have leave to go of her goodness. And here you should hear very bitter irony. She's good enough to let me go. She's not capturing me. Um, 
I took Breda to her hands, and she patted me on the head and said, now you may go. Very good of her. And I have leave to go of her goodness. And she also to use newfangleness. So she has leave. We've, we're agreed. We're adults. I can go sleep with other women. She can go sleep with other men. It's, it's all agreed. And she also to use newfangleness. But since that I so kindly am served, and there's bitter irony in the word kindly, um, this is kindness that he doesn't want. And it's also a pun or a conceptual pun on the, on the whole predator, prey, animal imagery in the poem. That is, it's, um, he is served, he is treated, he is used. But hang on to the word served. He is served in a way that you would expect an animal of that species to be served by an animal of that species. Kindly there means something like appropriate to the kind of animals we are, as well as meaning, um, but sarcastically, served with generosity, with, with kindness on her part. And since that I so kindly am served, and again the irony here is, so she should also deserve all good things. And he asks, again as a question, or an implied question, I would fain know what she hath deserved. Um, what should happen to her now that she's been so cruel to me, cruel in that kindly way to me? A very bitter um, question to end the poem. Um, I mentioned Tottle's Miscellany to people. That is the collection of poems that, were, that was printed in 1557 um, and which um, contains poems of Surrey, who we'll be reading for next week, and Wyatt, as well as a few other people whom we won't be reading, like Falk Greville, who is in, in this anthology, if you're curious. Um, Toddle changed that last line to make it a little bit more obvious into, um, since that I um, so kindly am served, how like you this, what hath she deserved? That is, he turns it into an actual question. Um, and the changes that he makes are changes that underline the subtlety that's too subtle for him. So that's useful to know. It's always useful to know what original editors find um, troubling in the poems that they're printing. Um, because often it's what's troubling that's most interesting about a poem. And they can alert you to that. So that in, in the shell of a rather large nut is what we talked about on Wednesday. Does anyone? Yeah. Um, oh. Wait, Anna, Lisa? Yes. Yes. Yeah, the likelihood was well. We don't know if it's Anne Boleyn, and um, but marriage is not much of an issue here. She may have been married; it wouldn't have mattered. Um, he, I, um, we don't know what year this is written in, but he may have been married too. Um, so it's not it's not a monogamous court. Um, the only time anyone ever in that court ever demanded monogamy was when they wanted to execute someone for not being monogamous. Um, but otherwise, it was just not how you lived um, or were expected to live. Um, anyone else want to? Okay. So 100 years later, um, George Herbert um, possibly, 
I would say probably knowing this poem, but it's not the first poem in his mind. Um, George Herbert was an Anglican priest and a so-called metaphysical poet. We talked a little bit last week about the metaphysical poets. Um, Dunn is the most famous of the metaphysical poets. He's the one um, who, uh, was it you, Barbara, who liked the, someone really liked his poem, A Valediction Forbidding Morning. Oh, it's you. Okay. Um, so, um, Dunn is the person who's very famous for, for metaphysical conceits, which is to say very, very non-intuitive um, extended metaphors that nevertheless work um, as metaphors. That is, they work logically. They may not work emotionally. And the point may be that they're not going to work emotionally. In that poem, A Valediction Forbidding Morning, which is the one about the twin compasses, remember it's um, you and me, baby, we're like two legs of a compass. Um, and it's a very odd poem because um, what he says is things like um, you're the fixed foot of the compass. That is the one that um, is at the center of the circle that the compass draws. You've all done that, right? Even in a computer age, you, use, you don't use slide rules, but you do use compasses. Good. Um, you know, there's a slide rule app. There are actually several for the iPhone. I have it. It's great. If I want to do calculations, I just get out the slide rule app. Um, the um, so you so a compass is the fixed foot is right in the center of the page, and then um, you can draw a circle by um, moving the other foot around it. Um, and it's at an angle to the fixed foot. So the larger the circle you want to do, the more you um, split the two legs, and the, the um, smaller the circle, the closer you bring them together. So Dunn has lines in that poem like, thy firmness makes my circle just. That is the fact that she's firm um, and isn't um, going to pieces when he has to go traveling um, makes him describe a perfect circle in what he's doing on his travels. But you may hear in the word firmness something that you may want to repress a little bit um, in a poem about love between a man and a woman um, who are having sex with, sex with each other because they're married. Um, this idea of her firmness feels both um, beautiful and slightly distracting. Um, much more so, perhaps, when he says that, um, like a compass, um, you're like the foot in the middle, and you grow erect as I come home. That is, as he gets closer and closer to um, the fixed foot of the compass. Um, so is that meant to be sexual and strangely gender-bending in its sexuality? Um, we'll decide when we read done, but it would be um, not hard to make the case. Um, in reading Dunn. Herbert, Dunn was a friend of Herbert's mother, not with benefits, just a friend. Um, Dunn was a friend of Herbert's mother. Um, Herbert is um, a generation, a short generation younger than Dunn, um, and very much admired his poetry. And, and um, Herbert, like Dunn, was an Anglican priest. Um, that is to say, um, he took orders and became a priest. Anglican priests then and now could marry. So it's not the same thing as uh, being a Roman Catholic priest. And um, it means that they are, um, they can write the same kind of poetry that anyone else can write. They're not restricted in a way that if you read the great Roman Catholic poets, let's say, of the um, 
the Roman Catholic priest poets like Hopkins um, or um, Cardinal Newman in the Victorian era, um, their poems are not erotic, or they're not erotic in standard ways of being erotic. Um, Herbert, Herbert's poetry is mainly about spiritual crisis. And um, he's an amazing poet of, let's call it, existential experience. And we'll see this um, when we get to read Herbert. Um, just the experience of being a human being, of wondering how and why am I here. Um, and he's extraordinarily thoughtful about those things. Um, so he wrote a book called The Temple. And The Temple is a book where the poems are arranged very carefully in an order of, um, of despair and recovery. And the poems kind of follow a rhythm of despair and recovery and further despair and further recovery. Um, in The Temple, there are three poems called Love. And Love 3, um, the three in the parenthesis, um, is the last poem in the book and um, the third of the poems called Love. So the um, last poem in Herbert's book is this poem called Love. And I think it's just worth framing, this is why we were going to do this on Wednesday, um, framing what we're doing in this course um, by um, seeing something like the compass-like trajectory from um, Wyatt to Herbert, even though we'll go beyond Herbert. Um, that'll give us a sense of things. So does anyone have a desire to read it, Love 3, aloud? Because if you don't have it, yes. Um, Yael? Uh, love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful, Ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, Who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have murdered them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says Love, who bore the blame? My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says Love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. Thank you. That very beautifully read. Um, one thing I should tell you is there are no quotation marks in the original. And these quotation marks are what the editors, where the editors think they should be. Um, I would just go cross them out. Um, it's it's uh, not nearly as clear as the editors make it seem that we know who's speaking when. Um, and I think that's important. Um, don't imagine that you know correctly which words are being spoken. Um, and who's speaking them, at least not on the basis of punctuation. I think most people have a pretty good sense of who's speaking and when, um, but you may not agree with other people who also have a good sense of that. Um, so I think, I think the Norton editors, the way they put the quotation marks in, are just wrong. Um, and so that's another reason to get rid of them. Quotation marks for speech, that is um, our, our use of quotation marks, where that's how you know someone is speaking, because what they say is framed by quotation marks. That, is, that doesn't really come in at all to, um, to writing in English until the early 18th century, and it doesn't become pretty universal until the end of the 18th century. 
So quotation marks, um, the, that punctuation mark is much later than any of the poems we're reading. None of the poets that we're reading ever used quotation marks. Um, what they sometimes used, um, I mean, this won't really matter because in, in um, the books we're reading, the um, print is, is normalized. But sometimes the way you can tell something is a quotation in 16th or 17th century books is that it will be in italics. So italics was the original way of indicating quotation when you typeset something. Um, you would get something, and we still get that sort of in contemporary novels when someone's thoughts are being quoted. If you read Faulkner, you'll frequently see bits in italics, which will be something like Benji thinking um, or, or um, Quentin thinking. Um, but italics was the way, um, the way things were quoted. Um, you also, does anyone know or does anyone wonder why there are italics in biblical verses? Behold, there is an man. Um, have you ever noticed that, reading the King James Bible, just italics? OK, well, when you notice it, come ask. Um, because I know, but most people don't. Um, OK, so remembering that Herbert is a priest um, and that this is a poem of religious devotion, um, that this is, excuse me, a book of religious devotion, um, it's worth going through this poem, but remembering Wyatt behind me. So who, who, since love is personified, who would love be in this poem written by an Anglican priest? Um, sorry, name? Lauren. Lauren. Uh, Jesus. Yeah. Christ. Yeah, Jesus. Um, the prince of love. Um, the person who out of love comes to earth in order to save each person individually and who welcomes us to salvation, who welcomes him, Herbert, to salvation. Um, how do we know that that's who's being, how, how do we know from the first few lines that that's who this is? Um, wait, wait. Um, I want to say Henry, but I'd be wrong. Omri. Omri. OK. That's, yeah. Similar ending there. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was, I was halfway there. <laughs> uh, I mean, from this, like, from guilty of dust and sin, from sin, you can tell that it could be Jesus, as in, like, draws back because he feels he sinned. Okay, good. And what about dust? What does the word dust mean there? Yeah. Um, Leah. That you're human, ashes, ashes, and dust to dust. I'm, I am but dust before thee. Right, exactly. Dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return, as the biblical verse goes. Um, I think it's the funeral service that says ashes to ashes and dust to dust. But the line from Genesis is, dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. Um, so yeah. Um, and why would humans be told that they're dust? Or when are they told? When are we told that we're dust in the Bible? Does anyone know? Um, Lauren? Um, well, it's a question of immortality or mortality of, of death in Genesis. Yeah. So, so um, when, uh, when are they told that they will die? Yeah, yeah. When they're, when they're expelled from Eden, when they've sinned, when they've eaten the fruit of the tree. So they eat the fruit, um, and because of that sin, the first sin, Milton will call it, anyone know? First line of Paradise Lost? Of man's, no? Oh, good, you're going to love Paradise Lost. <laughs> of man's first disobedience. 
that what Milton says this poem is about in the first line is of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree whose mortal taste brought death into the world and all our woe. Sing, heavenly muse. I've skipped a couple of lines, but that's how it goes. Mm -hmm. Topic, you know, the Iliad begins, anger, sing, goddess. You announce the topic as soon as you can in an epic. So the Iliad is anger, sing, goddess, the anger of Achilles and everything that happened. The Odyssey begins, sing of the man of many wiles, that is to say, Odysseus. The Aeneid, anyone? Yeah? Sing of arms and a man? Yeah, or it's actually of arms and the man I sing, says Virgil. Um, so Milton begins, of man's first disobedience, I sing. Of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree, the fruit of that tree is death. In other words, it's not sing me a song about an apple, which is what it might you might think at first. You're tempted, note my word, tempted to think that. Um, but no, the fruit of that tree is what comes from that tree, which is our death. So of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree. Um, and it's because they eat the fruit of that forbidden tree that they are told that dust that they are dust and shall return to dust. In Paradise Lost, um, God makes it more explicit. He says, know thy origin. Dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. So knowing that your dust is what happens to you when you sin, you turn out to be dirt. Sin is dirt, and sinning makes you dirt or restores you to the fact that you're dirt. So love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. I'm just trying to see if there's anything in the note that would tell you. Um, what that is. Um, does anyone know where the question, where you would hear the question, what do you lack? So it's a stand, where, what? Oh, no, I was just going to say it's association, I'm not sure. Yeah, what's the association? Well, I was seeing, um, you know, Matthew, the, the sheep and the lambs, like, you know, uh, yes, um, you know, uh, who gets into heaven and who doesn't depends on, you know, uh, when I was hungry, you gave me food, and when I was naked, you gave me clothing, like, we didn't know it was you, but the question is, you know, anything you do for, for your brother, you do for me, you do for God. Yes. And anything you don't do for your brother, you neglect to do for me. Okay, good. So that, um, that helping someone who lacks, caring about, about the lacking, is a mitzvah, as, as the Catholic Church calls them. <laughs> um, so um, the question itself, though, I think it's not still asked, but it was asked until very well into the 20th century in English pubs um, is the equivalent now of may I help you. That is, it's what a bartender, a barkeeper, an innkeeper would ask a guest um, who is considering what to order. Um, so you would say to them, what do you lack? And then you would say, I think I'll have a glass of milk and, um, and an apple. Um, <laughs> No, I'm a vegan. I'll have a glass of soy milk and an apple. Um, so love here is like an innkeeper. 
Um, and Herbert expects you to get that from the question. That is, love bade me welcome into an inn, into a hostelry. Love was a host um, and said, um, come on in. What can I get you? What can I do for you? So love bade me welcome. But my soul drew back guilty of dust and sin, like a wayfarer who's gone into too nice a restaurant, too nice an inn. Um, I can't go in here. Look, I'm in my jeans. I'm covered with dust. Um, it's, it's not, this is not a place for me. So he starts retreating. Love bade me welcome. But my soul drew back guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew near to me sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. Basically saying, let me, you know, let me get you what you need. Um, so what's his answer? What does he lack? It's quite an extraordinary answer that he gives. What can I get you? What do you need? Are you thirsty? Are you hungry? What do you need? What's his answer? You can look. It's not cheating. Sorry? Um, well, it's, but to be worthy is an infinitive. He actually gives a noun as an answer. George? Somebody that he could do something for? You're interpreting. <laughs> what is it? He says there's a particular thing I lack. Yeah? A guest. A guest, yes. <laughs> yeah, good. See, sometimes, sometimes it's permissible just to say what the poem says. Um, I know it's weird, and it's an English class and everything. But it's okay sometimes. Yeah, so what do you lack? A guest worthy to be here. That's a way of saying that he lacks everything. That he's not even entitled to be the one who lacks anything. I lack even the status of lacking something that you could fix. I can't be here. I am so guilty of dust and sin. I am so outside of this. So notice the totalizing there. I mean, I think it's pretty extraordinary how totalizing his answer is. Um, it's not, you know, the goodness or the right to be here. Um, it's not what you were interpreting it as, um, as worthiness to be here. It's even a person who might lack something you could supply. I don't even have that. You can't help me because I'm not the kind of person you can help. I'm not a guest worthy to be here. I lack that. I don't need patching up. I need to be someone else in order to be here. As long as it's me, there's nothing you can do for me. That's how guilty he feels. Um, the word guilty, is that a description of a feeling or a theological situation? Love bade me welcome, yet my soul grew back guilty of dust and sin. Leah. Um, both, but I would definitely say it's more of a theological condition, especially because in the last stanza, um, I know you not says love who bore the blame. It's this we're talking about, you know, dying for your sins and original sin and sin. Yes. <laughs> Generally. Yeah. Um, so who bears the blame for our fall? What's the Christian story in a nutshell, since we're talking nutshells already? Anyone know? Besides, I know you do. Anyone else? How does love, how does love, how does Jesus bear the blame for our sin? 
in um, as exemplified by Adam and Eve eating the apple. Yeah. When he's crucified. Yeah. So he pays. Um, you know, the, the, I have taught this course backwards um, in the past, and one thing that teaching it backwards does is it lets you um, go back into the earlier poems through the lens of how they were redone by later poets. This will be. Um, You'll see this, if you don't know the story, you'll know it in Paradise Lost. What God, who's a character in Paradise Lost, quite a character, really. Um, guess he should be played by Ben Affleck. Um, um, what God says in Paradise Lost is that um, Adam and Eve are foredooming all their progeny. Um, he with his whole um, um, posterity must die die he or justice must, says God. There they've sinned, and if he doesn't get punished for this sin and die, and die for good, which is to say end up in hell forever, um, then justice will die. And if God has to choose between an unjust person and justice itself, as God, he has to choose justice. That's what he is saying. Um, so he with his whole posterity must die. Then a line which Ezra Pound just hated, but rightly so, because, it, because um, it's supposed to be a line showing what a character God is. Die he or justice must, God says. He takes that as a logical inevitability. Die he, that is mankind, or justice must. He says, unless another can be found to pay the rigid satisfaction, death for death. So he says someone has to pay, has to be punished for the sin that Adam and Eve have committed in eating the apple. The penalty has to be exacted or justice will not be served. That's what God says in Paradise Lost, and that's fairly standard, although very harshly described, fairly standard Christian theology. That original sin put us in a situation where nothing we could do, no matter how good, could bring us to salvation. Because what we had done was so totally bad that even if we were 100% good from now on. We couldn't get back to compensating for what we'd done. That's what it would mean for us to lack a guest worthy to be here. No matter what we did, we are totally lost. We can't recover. It's, it's like not being able to get to, you can be late for class, and you can put the pedal to the metal and drive 200 miles an hour down the pike and get here just on time. You know, you're, you have 10 minutes till class, you're half an hour away, but you really speed and you make it. Um, or class can already have started. And then if you move with infinite speed, you won't get to class on time. We in the we're in the position after the fall of even infinite virtue on our part can't compensate for the absolute crime that we've committed. So God says there's nothing that humans can do, no matter how good they now are, to compensate for the fall. It says, um, so someone who is capable, ready 
and willing but also able to pay the penalty would have to pay it for human beings. Someone who still isn't late for class, someone who would be capable of paying that penalty. And he looks at all the angels and he says, but is, dwells there in heaven a love so great? Is there anyone in heaven who will do this? And all the angels notice that they have to kind of brush the tips of their wings and they're not really um, able to do that. Um, but what God says is, is there anyone who's willing to die for man? And there's a stunning silence until the Son of God, who is simply known as the Son, he, he's not named Jesus, that's his earthly name, till the Son of God says, I'll do it. I am willing to die so that human beings may live. Account me man, he says. That is say, treat me as though I were not the Son of God, but as though I were a man. Make me a man. Make me a person. I will die. And so that's the Christian story of redemption, which is a financial term. It's like redeeming a bottle, getting your, your nickel back after you finish your Coke. Um, it's a financial term where you buy something back. So what he's doing is buying back our sin by dying. And that's what that line means towards the end of the poem. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame. That is, don't you know that I took the blame upon myself for what happened to you? Don't you know that, that I've paid? So Herbert says, I lack a guest worthy to be here. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. Love doesn't say, oh, no, you don't. Love says, no, I'm going to make you that guest who is worthy to be here. I, the unkind, ungrateful. Now, I think he's actually saying that to love. That's not a question that he's asking as he writes the poem. His response to love saying, to love saying, you shall be here, his response is to say, me? I, the unkind, ungrateful? Ah, oh, my dear, I cannot look on thee. I can't even look at you. I'm so unkind and so ungrateful. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I? So why is that a good response to what, he, to what Herbert has just said? Lauren? It's saying you cannot look upon something if the source of vision itself is love, then every, nothing is separate from it. So even using its very organ, or not to use its very organ, is not even recognized of itself. Okay, good. Um, Gabrielle? Um, I think it's like love saying, you know, because Herbert's saying, I'm, I'm not worthy to do this, and love saying, who are you to say what you can, I made those, like, who, I made your eyes, who are you to say what you can do with them if I made them? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's those eyes are already holy, I made them. Um, they're not yours to say that you can um, so corrupt them that they're not worth me. No matter how much you've corrupt, corrupted them, they still come from me. He's not saying I own them, but he's saying those are the eyes that I made. Of course you can look at me. Um, Leah. Okay. 
sorry, liturgy nerd. It's just a lot of things. Um, also, the fact that he calls himself unkind, ungrateful, and unworthy. Um, there's a line of, he who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who is humble shall be exalted. Uh -huh. So the very fact that he perceives himself in this way is the reason he is capable of accepting this, this love. Um, and there's several lines in the gospel about um, the eyes are the lamp of the body. When, you're, um, when your eye is bad, your world is darkness. But when your eye is good, your body is filled with light. Um, and so if, as long as he sees himself as something that is unworthy, he will act in unworthy ways, and he cannot accept this love. So he has to change his perception in order to change his reality. Okay, good. Nice. Um, yeah. yeah. Also, the line of, who made the eyes but I, uh, reminds me of a part in Exodus, when God is talking to Moses, and Moses is saying he can't go speak to Pharaoh because he um, is slow of speech, and God says to him, uh, who made the dumb man able to speak, the blind able to see, was it not I? So it's like that. Okay, good. Um, anyone here, any other biblical resonances there? I think you can think of the book of Job here also. Canst thou draw out Leviathan within hook? Um, there's a long, it's actually the longest um, set of God's speeches <coughs> in the whole Bible is what God says to Job out of the whirlwind. And basically what God says to Job is, you have no idea what I have created and what I've done and what my creation is. Um, you can't, you can't um, comprehend it. So don't try. Don't try to be the judge here who decides um, how the world is and how the world should be. Um, so it's a rebuke that God gives Job from the whirlwind in the book of Job. Um, but the question is the question of who gets to decide. Um, it's a strange kind of pride in sinfulness if you think that you can decide for yourself that you're irredeemable. If you think that you can decide for yourself that, um, that you're not a guest worthy to be there. Um, a strange kind of sin because it's pride that can be easily converted to humility or humility that can easily be converted to pride. It's a hopeful sin, this sin of being certain that you can't be saved um, because it's an admission of guilt. It's an admission of needing to be saved, of not being able to do it yourself. Um, but you still need correction for that as well. And that's what love offers. Ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I? So what would that parallel in They Flee From Me, if you see this poem, as a kind of distant but genuine redoing of They Flee From Me. S Susan, you're smiling, so. Oh, it's like the hush moment. Yeah. Dear heart, how like you this. Yeah. Yes, dear heart, how like you this. Who made the eyes but I? That is, it's the moment when the speaker is um, rendered almost helpless with um, gratitude um, with a question which by its very nature fills the speaker with gratitude. Dear heart, how like you this? Who made the eyes but I? Yeah. It's also, 
and when you read it aloud, who made the eyes but I, it becomes a question of um, personal identity. Like, I made all people nice. eyes, but yeah. people who will call themselves I. Good, good, yeah. Who, ma who made all eyes, all subjective experiences, but I. And then he answers, yes, but, truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. So, let me go. Um, I have leave to go of her goodness. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. But we get something of a different ending. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame, my dear, then I will serve. Um, what do you notice about the third line? Love's re reply. Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, then I will serve. Yeah. Well, you have the repetition of that word serve that we had in uh, the flea Uh-huh, yeah. used uh, very differently here. It's not bitter, it's very kind and loving. Okay, good. So it's, um, since I so kindly am served, I fain would know what she hath deserved. Um, same rhyme, deserve and serve. Um, not quite a legitimate rhyme, we don't think in English, um, because it's, it's, it's too close to a repetition. Like, would you rhyme um, do and undo? Um, no. The answer, no, the answer is you wouldn't. Um, so, so it stands out a little bit, that serve, deserve, line, rhyme. Um, it's almost legitimate because we say the S in deserve differently from the S in serve. Um, so it, wor it, it doesn't stand out that much, but it's still a little bit sketchy. Um, what else do you notice about that line? And know you not says love who bore the blame. Annalisa. Well, like, it's, I already died on the cross to save you. You can't, like, walk away now. Like, it's been done. You're saved. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, so it's who bore the blame, not who bears the blame, but who bore it. I did it for you. That's really important. Um, that this is a done deal now. Um, anything else about the line? Just uh, grammatically, linguistically? Gabriel. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost as if they're separating this one phrase into two phrases. I know you're not, says love, who bore the blame. It should be, I know you're not, who bore the blame, says. I know you're not, I bore the blame. I yeah. love bore the blame, something like that. It's just like separating it up makes, it essentially confuses me into thinking like there's two aspects to it. It's either you really bore the blame, but I'm suffering for it, or I have accepted the blame already retroactively for everything. Yeah. So it probably actually means more the second. That is, um, we now say idiomatically, um, uh, uh, what, Obama bears the blame for the fact that our economy is still in the doldrums. Um, and what we mean by that is that it's his fault. But that's not what the phrase um, bear the blame means. What it, it, it usually but not always means that. What it really means is who 
is blamed, whether rightly or wrongly. So if you say that Obama bears the blame for the economy, if, if you're a Democrat and you say Obama bears the blame for the economy being in the tank, um, you might follow that up saying even though it was Bush's fault. And if you're a Republican, you would mean something different by that, which is it was Obama's fault. Um, but bear the blame here is um, who accepts responsibility rather than who's responsible. Um, they're not synonymous. So love is saying, I did that for you. I took the blame. I bore the blame. But I do think you're registering and rightly registering the kind of um, syncopation in the interrupted line with what's called a speech tag. A speech tag is he said, she said in a novel, you know, you're reading or, or a story. Um, they look like white excuse me, they look like white elephants, the girl said. No, they don't, the American said. They do from here. So that's Hemingway. Um, those parts, the American said, the girl said, those are called speech tags. And they're just telling you who says something that's in quotation marks. Here, the speech tag is says love. And um, the interesting thing, do you want to say something about speech tags? Uh, no, it wasn't about speech tags. It was Okay, so give me just one sec. The interesting thing about what's called a medial speech tag, a speech tag in the middle of a line, is it's something that, um, that can do interesting things to rhythm, um, which is that what Love said, if you were turning this into a little play, um, you couldn't get the pause that the poem puts there. What, you, what, what the person, what the character playing Love would say, what Mel Gibson would say is, and know you not who bore the blame, my dear, then I will serve. Um, but you would just get the straight line. And know you not who bore the blame. But there's something about the pause that the speech tag lets you have. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame, which rhythmically adds a little bit of wonder to the line. It's like, love said that. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame. So the line is drawn out by the speech tag which tells you who said it. There's an example of this. This is something I'm actually really interested in. There's an example of this in the thin um, red line, which is the James Jones novel that was turned into a movie by um, Terrence Malick. Has anyone seen it or read it? So it's, it's a great World War II movie. You know who Terrence Malick is? Uh, his latest movie is Tree of Life. Um, so at any rate, there's a line in the novel, which is a radio operator in a, in a pitched battle with the Japanese um, is describing a wounded man, and the radio operator is, is calling in, and he says, there's a man, and then we get a long interruption. He did not stumble or hesitate, but he wanted to hesitate. So there is a man, comma. He did not stumble or hesitate, but he wanted to hesitate, comma, open quotation, got shot on the hill. So the narrative does the hesitation, that the radio operator doesn't do, even though he wants to do it. The, narr the narrative does it for him. All he says, and if you look at the movie, it simply he says, there's a man gut shot on the hill. But in the book, it's there's a man, he did not stumble or hesitate, but he wanted to hesitate, gut shot on the hill. <coughs> so you can do that. It's a really nice stylistic technique <coughs> that Herbert does here. And the effect is one of a little bit of wonder. Um, Gabrielle, what were you going to say? It was just about <coughs> the rhythm that you were bringing up. It seems like he doesn't 
in the poem it doesn't specifically say that um, that Herbert understands what love is trying to get at. Like nobody explicitly love never explicitly says. By the way, it was me. If you didn't know, um, he just. But it seems like there's like this beat that he programmed <coughs> into it anyway. Because it's like, my dear, then I will serve. Like he's paused to let it sink in for Herbert, and then he's like, "All right, now we can continue." And like, Good. I think that's really interesting because neither of them ever explicitly says anything about it, but. The way that he wrote that sentence lets you imagine that there was like a pause for understanding and then you can keep going. Good. Great. That's really nice. Yeah. Uh, Yael, did you want to say something? Mm -hmm. Susan. Uh, well, this switch to the present tense. Yes. Yes. You notice that we've gone from a guest, I answered, worthy to be here, love said, you shall the he, I, the ungrateful, oh, my dear, I cannot look on thee, love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I. Then we get this strange immediacy. So why the shift to the present tense? What would be different? Just listen. What would be different if it went, <coughs> love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, said love, who bore the blame? My dear, then I will serve. What would be the difference? Yeah. It becomes an actual exchange rather than a perpetual uh, spiritual safety. Yeah. Love is always going to say that. Love is always saying that. Yeah. And so let's, let's say that this is something that's also similar then <coughs> to They Flee From Me, which is in all story telling, narrative, recounting of stories. What's called reported speech, we tend to call it quotation, but that's actually technically inaccurate. Um, we'll just call it quotation, but just so you know that it's technically inaccurate. When you have characters speaking, like in Hills Like White Elephants, which I referred to before, um, that is vivid and immediate. Character speaking becomes something vivid and immediate for a reader or listener. So even if a story is told in the past tense, there is a past tense way of doing dialogue. There is a past tense way of reporting what people said. I said that I thought it was no good going on, and she said that she guessed I was right, and I said I was sorry, but that we had to leave it like that. And then she wept for a moment, and then she left without looking back. So <coughs> that puts everything squarely into the past. Um, that's from Kraft's last tape, more or less, what I just told you. Um, but that puts everything squarely into the past. If you quote what people are saying, the past comes into the present, because what you're doing is reproducing verbatim what happened then. These words were said, and now these words are being said. I said that I thought it was no good going on, and she said, yes, I'm afraid you're right. And I said, I'm sorry it's like this. Um, just putting that, this is again, if you're, if you're a writer, this is something you, you'll think about or will have thought about. Putting <coughs> dialogue into the present tense or putting dialogue in quotation marks brings it into the present. And you can feel that happening very naturally here, that dialogue goes from being 
here's something that happened to me once. Um, Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back guilty of dust and sin by, but quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. Past tense. We know what love said, do you lack anything? But we don't get that quoted. We get the story told in the past tense. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Now notice that these guys don't put quotation marks around a guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Um, <clears throat> they think that that's still a past tense narrative. Um, they're sort of right and sort of wrong. The fact that Herbert is writing in an age before quotation marks means that he can finesse whether those are the actual words that he used. So Love said, if I lacked anything. And I answered that I, di I did lack something, namely a guest worthy to be here. Or, quote, a guest worthy to be here. Did he actually say those words? Yes and no is, would, would be the right answer. We're in the past tense, and there are no quotation marks ever. So a guest I answered, worthy to be here, love said, you shall be he. How do we know for sure that love said that, that that's not past tense anymore? What, how would it go if this were still a past tense narrative? I don't think so. I think there's uh, a... <coughs> um, will and shall, I think you can just take as more or less synonymous here. But if this were not in quotation marks in a 21st century context, what would love have to have said? Gabrielle, were you going to say something? No, I was thinking. I'm sorry. Okay, so um, here, just tell the story. Just, just paraphrase what just happened. So he, Herbert, says, I lacked a guest worthy to be here. What did love do? Someone. If Herbert's still narrating, it said, love said, it should be me. If yeah. You, if you reverse that and then you try and retroactively add in the quotations again, <clears throat> love saying something totally different. Yeah. The you there tells you that, that love is being quoted. Does everyone see that? Um, it's if you tell a story in the past tense, <coughs> it's, you can say something like, I was late and she said I was a jerk. OK? <laughs> um, I didn't come in late and she looked at me and said, oh, I was a jerk. Um, <laughs> She told, she told me that I was a jerk for being late. If I tell the story instead, I was late and she said, you're a jerk. Um, it doesn't mean that she said that you guys were jerks because I was late. Um, the pronoun, the switch in pronoun tells you, even without quotation marks, that what's happening here is being quoted. If it weren't quoted, if he weren't giving love's actual words, the way it would go is, against, I guess I answered worthy to be here, love said, that will be you. Or love said that that would be me. I'm, so, I'm sorry, I, I blew it myself. Love said that I'd be he. Something like that is how it, go, how it would go if it weren't love being quoted. Yeah. And that kind of subject-object random switch continues <coughs> their exchange. Um, who made the eyes but I, truth lord, but I have marred them than being my eyes. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. Um, and know you not, says love, who bore the blame. And then he replies, my, my dear, then I will serve. Um, they went from talking about his shame as a thing separate from himself to him as a full entity. Right. And so that also goes back to the beginning where, you know, his shame is, you know, guilty of dust and sin. It's a question of, like, 
the more you think of yourself as a being full of dust and sin and blame and you know shame that has to go where it deserves, the less you're actually actively participating in the world. Okay, good. Um, again, a thing now to connect this to in Wyatt is just that dreamlike moment when what someone has said relives in the, gets relived in the present. That is, there's only one quotation in the Wyatt poem, which is, Dear heart, how like you this. Dear heart, how like you this. And that's the dreamlike moment. Those words, she really said them. I could hear them still. Therewithal sweetly did me, did me kiss and said to me, Dear heart, how like you this. Nothing can take those words away from me. That she actually said that to me. Nothing can take that away from me. Everything else is in the past. But I can quote those words. I can remember what she said, which brings them, at least, into the present. Quoted words are present words. That's a really important fact about the way they work in our lives, in our psychology. Just remember the first time that the person you were desperately in love said, I love you to you. The you know, person you never thought would do that, and they did. Um, that's great. That'll be with you for the rest of your life. Um, unless things go really sour with that person. Um, but that's a great thing. That is something that endures. That's what Wyatt is getting. It really matters that he's quoting her, dear heart, how like you this. And Herbert is picking that up from Wyatt that we go from the past, love took my hand, love said, <coughs> love asked if I lacked anything, not do you lack anything, to who made the eyes but I, you shall be here. Um, know you not, says love. And now the whole tone of the poem is in the present tense. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame. Um, I sort of feel like inverts what Wyatt's doing there because with Wyatt the first two lines are sort of in this they are past but they're this infinite dreamlike quality of stuff that happened and then we get reality and then with Herbert we have this situation that happens in the past and then the last stanza of going forward to infinity this conversation with love that's sort of hopeful yeah good good so that's that's lovely so it's an so it's an inversion where the infinite fact that the past is gone in Wyatt becomes um, the inversion of that. So the past of sin is what's gone, and, and the infinite fact now is the present, says love. Love already bore the blame, already been crucified, as, as someone said. Um, and yet it's now, that having happened, bore the blame. That's what's in the past. Love says that love bore the blame. No, you not, says love. Who bore the blame? So bearing the blame, that's the past. Being crucified, that's the past. Um, you're being loved now. You're being redeemed. That's the present. Nice. Um, so what do you make then of the last two lines? So my dear, then I will serve. Um, you must sit down, says love. Again, that present. And taste my meat. Yeah. Um, well, well, if we continue with like the idea that uh, the, the sin is in the past and from something that you mentioned in the beginning about like being welcome into like an inn or like a bar or something like that it's now like that's in the past now you are a worthy guest I can serve you come and sit down at like my table and enjoy whatever's here yeah 
Yeah, good. Gabriel, then Gabriel. Uh, could we not argue that the switch from the past tense to the present tense is indicating that there's this time gap between Herbert recognizing that he's a sinner, but then he says, I can, I can actually come close to love. And that time gap is where he, where he's able to become, he's able to purify himself to the point where he can sit down at this table with love and eat. Uh-huh. Yeah, good. Yeah. Yes, we can argue that. Good. Gabriel. Um, Gabriel. Knowing the religious background and, like, obviously the undertones, um, the act of Holy Communion is something that yes. brings the community, the church, together as, like, one. And so the fact that he said, so I did, he, you know, love or Jesus is saying, you know, come eat and, like, be part of this community. Like, come, you're you're ready for love and you're worthy of love, so join us. Yes. Um, and the fact that he nice. very simply says, so I did sit and eat, means like, so I did sit at this table not only with Jesus, but with the church as a community. Like, I did accept this love from them and I shared this meal with them. Yeah, and it's absolutely right to see the Holy Communion there. Um, that that um, what Herbert is thinking of, who, who's a celebrant of the communion every, at least every Easter, um, but probably every Sunday. Um, is referring to that. Um, and I'll well, I guess going off of that, um, when you break the bread during communion, it's the body of Christ. Yeah. So his choice of the word here like, seems like he is eating the body of Christ yes. in the sense of communion and becoming, I guess, in that way, enmeshed in Christ. Good. Life. So do we want to, what do we want to do? Do we want to do anything with the past tense at the end then? I think you could argue it both ways, that the past tense, it really feels like an it was no dream I lay broad waking moment. Um, that is, so here's what happened. And I really did sit and eat. But it's not, so here I am sitting and eating. It's, and that's, and that's what happened, and that's the end of the poem. Which could mean either happy ending, no more needs to be said, or that was an amazing moment, I'm sorry it's gone. It might be hard to pick between those two. Leah. I don't think that putting it in the past tense implies that it was a one-time a, a one -time event is singular. Um, how do I explain it? Um, it's <coughs> saying, so I did sit and eat. It's, it's a, I don't have the words for it. I'm sorry, come back to me. I had it in this dump. Okay. Um, Gabriel. I think the way that he phrased, I mean, obviously this is a poem, so it's meant to be read by people, but I think the way that he phrased it makes it seem a lot like the narrator is telling this to someone, maybe that was in his position, like someone else that doesn't feel worthy, because it's very emphatic, like it's not flowery, it's, yeah. it's a very simple line, but it it seems like more powerful because it's just very plain. Good. And I think he's like telling that story that you know it was that dream sequence where like love said that you know he took the blame from me he he's burying it so that's why that's in present tense and then like suddenly he's like back in front of whoever he's talking to and then he says like so I did sit and eat and nice. like I feel like there's that wraps up like a little like a, a lesson for whoever is like listening to it. Okay, nice, good. Um, yeah. Um, religion is a response to revelation. And I feel like this is the this is his moment of revelation. So even if he's observant and very religious for the rest of his life, it's it's a continuing on from this first moment of revelation. So him sitting and eating is that moment of pure acceptance, that moment of understanding. Okay, good. Susan. Uh, is there any 
it up for grabs who says my dear that I will say? Yes, it is up for grabs. What do you think? Because he addresses love as my dear yeah. previously. Yeah. Said, Let me serve you and love says now I'll serve you. Yeah. So that's one possibility is that <coughs> love is saying, um, all right, um, I bore the blame. And then Herbert says, well, in that case, you know, um, if I am going to come in and accept that, let me be the one who serves you the food. And Love says, no, just sit down. Um, or it could be, no, you not, says Love, who bore the blame. Well, if you don't know, look, I'm as good as the next person. That is, it could be Love being modest. Um, if you don't really have someone who bore the blame for you, um, I'll do it. I'm good enough. Um, it's... it's um, as in um, Mercutio saying, "'Tis not as wide as a barn door, nor deep as a well, but twill serve, twill serve. Um, it's serviceable. It's enough." Um, all right. Do people, do, just in general, just by show of hands, do you get a sense of this as a really neat sort of riff on Wyatt, that there is a connection between the poems? Um, you can raise your hands if you do. No? OK. Oh, well, I tried. <laughs> Um, all right, for um, Wednesday, you should have read, um, again, quickly, um, whatever that means, the skeleton in this book, um, and the Wyatt, as well as the two Wyatt poems that most of you now have. There are three full poems on the sheet, but one of them is also in here. So the two Wyatt poems on that sheet that are not in here, which I will also put on Latte. That is my galley charged with forgetfulness and the long love that in my thought doth harbor. And I will see you Wednesday. So the, Spencer the Spencer? No, the Spencer isn't forever.